Welcome to episode 115 with my guest, Ashley Birch. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medical... Keep going. Medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. All kinds of good stuff there. There's a forum you can join. There are surveys you can take. You can see how other people responded to the survey. Uh, People revealing some of their deepest, darkest secrets. Uh, A lot of those we read on the show. Um, and, um, yeah, so go, go check out the, the website, um, about the, uh, interview today. Um, one of the things that Ashley asked me to do was bleep out the name of a doctor that is mentioned in it. So when you hear that get bleeped out, um, she was just more comfortable not having that person's name said publicly. And, um, I had no problem with doing that. What do I want to tell you? Oh, I want to remind you that um, a week from, I guess it would be, let's see, this goes up on the 24th, on May 30th, 2013, uh, is the debut of a documentary on the California PBS stations, um, TV stations, um, called A New State of Mind, Ending the Stigma of Mental Illness, and they cover uh, the podcast on that so i'm very excited to be a part of that and um former guests megan parkansky and greg barrett also get interviewed for that so i'm uh i'm excited to uh, to see that and then obsess for a couple hours about what could have been differently and what wasn't perfect about how i was represented and how people will misinterpret that and uh how i will spiral into a rabbit hole and then realize that i'm a jackass i'm looking forward to that really looking forward to that um and it's narrated by glenn close I might actually uh, shit myself if I hear Glenn Close uh, mention my name. You would think living here for 20 years, being in show business, meeting people, some of that awe would go away at uh, sometimes like seeing a movie star, but I, I still kind of become a 12-year-old uh, kid when I when I see somebody really uh, famous that I've seen in movies. Um I have a lot of surveys to, um, you thought I was going to say I have a lot of issues. I have those too. But um, let's just get into the surveys, shall we? This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey uh, filled out by Stasia Tay. um, And about her bulimia, she says, one bite too much changes everything in a, a second. About her love addiction, needing to be adored. About her codependency, sick and blind to it again and again and about living with an abuser shocks me each time with his put downs this is from the same survey filled out by uh, a guy uh, calls himself Derek about his anxiety he writes my anxiety feels like a psycho ex-girlfriend who waits outside your door you can take medication but that's more of a restraining order I want that bitch dead about his PTSD he says I feel like if it happened once it can happen again at any time I can never fully relax for fear of being caught off guard. This is filled out by Harriet, same survey, about her depression. She says, like my personality has been replaced by a block of cement. This is filled out by Clara about her depression. She says, sometimes like nothing matters. Sometimes it's like just me that doesn't matter. 
Sometimes I just want everything in the whole world to shut the fuck up for one goddamn minute. About her alcoholism and drug addiction. God, I hope this doesn't end up ruining my life. God, I hope I haven't ruined my life already. About her codependency, she writes, I never wanted to need anyone. I hope that I don't need him now. About her PTSD, she writes, It's so indistinct. I know what causes it, but it's almost like I'm not feeling the pain from that. It's just something that makes me shut down because it comes out of nowhere. Sometimes I can't breathe. I just have to tell myself to get through the next minute. And about being a sex crime victim, she writes, I can't even say the fucking word out loud. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself AP. She's straight. She's in her 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been sexually abused, deepest, darkest thoughts. Growing up in a conservative Catholic household, thinking of sex in general is unthinkable. It crosses my mind constantly, and although I refuse to act on such unpure thoughts, I cannot stop myself from wanting to quite literally be fucked so I can feel wanted and beautiful. I also think about suicide. I know in my heart I could never go through with it. Still, I often escape to a world where I am free from my depression and anxiety. The idea of ceasing to exist is strangely calming. Deepest, darkest secrets. I have willingly and knowingly continued to be my first love's backup fuck. I have compromised my morals for that brief moment of being wanted. Even though it hurts how much I have disrespected again, I know that if he contacted me again, I would respond for a few moments of attention. For months, I continuously wrote fat on an area covered by my underwear so I would see it every day and constantly remind myself of my own self-hatred. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. She writes, Most of my fantasies revolve around me being in control over my partner emotionally. In them, I am disconnected from the emotional aspects of sex and feel free from the hurt that has followed me from past relationships. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, no. I have never trusted someone enough to say more than, I have trust issues. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Self-hatred, she writes. Well, I'm sending you a big, a big hug, AP. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, and it was filled out by a woman who calls herself Jennifer. She writes, I'm supposed to feel excited to be living, but I don't. I feel like I can't wait for it to be over. I'm supposed to feel like talking about my sexual abuse and therapy will make me feel better, but I don't. I feel frozen and ashamed, and I can't do it. The words won't come out. I sit there silently like a stupid little piece of shit. How does writing your feelings out make you feel? She writes, I feel like crying, and I don't like to cry. I feel hopeless because I've gone to therapy for a year and I just haven't found the words. I'm going to be stuck in my prison forever. Do you feel abnormal? Um, you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? She writes, yes. Um, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? She writes, yes, I've started group therapy and I'm figuring out that I am not alone in some of my feelings, but I still can't get out of this prison I have made for myself that separates me from everyone else. And to that, Jennifer, I would say, be patient with yourself. It's a process. It takes time. Some of the shit that wound up, you know, for me, causing the greatest pain, I didn't even uncover in my first 18 months of therapy. I'd buried it so deep that I'd convinced myself that it wasn't abusive stuff that had happened to me. So it's it's a process. And just keep just keep showing up and just keep 
plugging away. Um, this is from the same survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Giovanna. And she writes, I'm supposed to feel happy about my cousin getting married and having a baby, but I don't. I feel jealous and anxious that it will never happen to me. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? She writes, yes. I have a hard time being happy for people because my life is nothing like I hoped it would be. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? She writes, absolutely. Well, Giovanna, you are like so many people. I think that's one of the most normal things in the world is to look at other people's successes as our failures. I do it all the time. So you are not alone. It's from the same survey filled out by a guy or a woman who calls herself uh, Kai. And um, she writes... If, um, to the question, how, if you had a time machine, how would you use it? She writes, I would go back and see how bad it really was with my alcoholic, verbally abusive stepfather. Are my memories exaggerated? If not, why didn't an adult intervene? Well, because a lot of fucking adults are children walking around in adult bodies wrapped up in their own bullshit. Uh, could it have been even worse than my memory allows? Was I really singled out? Was it really that bad? Is my anger justified? Am I crazy? Boy, do I fucking relate to that. Um, she writes, I'm supposed to feel great about being a mother, but I don't. I feel tired and useless. I'm supposed to feel ha happy to have a loving, involved husband, but I don't. I feel jealous of the time he spends with our kids. I'm supposed to feel compassion about my mother, who has a history of being in abusive relationships, but I don't. I feel angry at her for never learning any better and never choosing me or my sisters over her relationship. I'd say that's a pretty fucking valid feeling. Um, although, you know what? All feelings are valid. I, I think that's a, a a valid thing to be upset about. Um, I'm supposed to feel lucky to be a stay-at-home mom, but I don't. I feel stuck. I'm supposed to feel grateful to have a happy, healthy family, but I don't feel guilty for never feeling genuine joy and always bringing everyone down. I'm supposed to feel enthusiastic about seeking therapy, but I don't. I feel angry, scared, ashamed, guilty, nervous. I wish I didn't have to do it, and I don't want to relive my childhood. I'm supposed to feel everything I don't, and I'm not supposed to feel everything I do. I really related to that. Really, really related to that. And I want to say what I said to, to the other person in the survey. It's a process. Hang in there. You can do it. You can absolutely do it. You only have to worry about the next minute that's, that's in front of you. But I get how terrifying and overwhelming it can feel. Um. This is from the same survey. A uh, woman call, calls herself Tab, says, I'm supposed to feel proud about getting my PhD, but I don't because I should have accomplished this 10 years earlier. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes, it's hardly explicable, which makes it socially abnormal. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better? Yes, if you can find them. Well, guess what? Three survey numbers after yours, filled out by a guy who calls himself Eeyore, he writes, I'm supposed to feel happy and proud about getting a PhD, but I don't. I feel bored and alone. How does it? Uh, do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? He writes, sometimes I feel as though I'm incapable of ever being satisfied or happy with myself, and that does seem abnormal. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? He writes, I think so. Well, there you have it. And this last one I want to read before we get to our interview is from the Body Shame Survey. And uh, this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Troubled Nation. 
He's uh, in his 20s. And what do you like or dislike about your body? He writes, I hate my fat fucking gut, my lack of muscle definition, my goofy giant head, my fucking chipmunk cheap cheeks, my inability to grow facial hair that doesn't look disgusting, and my greasy skin that still breaks out if I eat a cheeseburger once in a fucking while. I like my hair, though. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with uh, with Ashley Birch, and uh, the reason I'm laughing is <laughs> we just taped for taped recorded for an hour and fifteen minutes, maybe. And, Isn't that long, really? <laughs> yeah, and the power went off in the studio where we're re- recording, and uh, her half of the recording that file is corrupted. So we are starting. Um, we just decided to start again because um, why not? Why not? Uh, People, uh, your your description on Twitter says uh, Ashley is a singer, uh, actress, and writer, which makes her indistinguishable from eighty three percent of the population of Los Angeles. Which I I, I may be butchering that, but I think that's pretty close. Yeah, that is. That is. Which uh, really really made me laugh. People know you mostly from the web series Hey Ash. Uh huh. What you playing? Mm-hmm. And it is a, a web series kind of about video games, but it's also kind of sketch comedy. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. And they would also know you as the voice from some video games? Yes. Uh, most popular character I've done is Tiny Tina in Borderlands 2. Tiny Tina Yeah. in Borderlands 2. Yeah. Um, but those are not the reasons why I'm having you on the podcast. I can't remember how we connected... Um, how did we connect? Well, uh, I was just posting on Twitter. I don't remember. Oh, it was it was after um, they caught uh, the feller whose name I escapes me now. Oh no, uh, that uh, was behind the Boston. Oh, okay. Bombings, and I was just tweeting about. Um, you know, I think people people were were talking a lot about the fact that he was nineteen and how crazy that was, and. Um, and I started thinking about uh, a lot of men that I know and, you know, recent experiences that have happened with me um, that, you know, I think it's very easy to uh, demonize and to um, to sort of put people into certain categories based on – and not, not dismissing his actions at all. What happened was absolutely terrible. Um, but sort of every asshole, every douchebag, every whatever comes from somewhere and – uh, I think I was tweeting about something along the lines of, you know, that there's a reason that men are disproportionately violent and, uh, you know, susceptible to addiction, and it doesn't have to do with the fact that they're bad. 
And um, I was just speculating on probably had a lot to do with the fact that society uh, doesn't think that men should be able to express their emotions openly. And uh, there aren't a whole lot of outlets when you're told that you can't be vulnerable. And um, and I think someone someone that followed me connected me to or tweeted at you or mental pod. And uh, and then I read what you wrote. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. I, and I loved it. Yes, that was it. That was it. Yeah. And um, and so I asked you if you'd be interested in coming on the podcast. And one of the things that you forewarned me about was that you're going through kind of a difficult situation um, mm-hmm. in the last couple of months. Um, where would be the best place to start with talking about that? Um, <clears throat> well... The synopsis is that um, in December, uh, my partner, David... uh, This would be five months ago? Yeah, coming up on five months. uh, Passed away on the 20th from an accidental overdose of opioids. And um, he had been dealing with uh, chronic back pain um, that he was medicating and also... um, he had, uh, I realized in retrospect, probably the bigger issue and the thing that he was actually medicating was uh, uh, emotional trauma that he'd had. Um, he was molested when he was a child by a, a trusted adult um, in his theater community because he used to do, well, he was always into theater, but he started at a young age and is an older man in, in the community that was molesting a lot of children and he was one of them and um and had he ever received david ever received any kind of help or counseling or processing of it no i don't think so no no i think did he ever report it no the the guy ended up getting caught um and and i think he got jail time but i don't think he personally ever i think he only told he told his mom and he told me and he told one of his close friends mm-hmm. from Michigan. Um, Did that, that uh, the molester get extra time for being a theater stereotype? <laughs> <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> I can only assume that guy was also incredibly overdramatic at Shakespeare. <laughs> there, was a, there was a theater teacher that, uh, that I had who was just, he was creepy. And, man, he just could not get enough of himself doing Shakespeare. Oh, God. Yeah. I've, I've known the type. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so talk to, talk to me about uh, David. You guys were together for, for three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's funny talking about uh, knowing when I, when I just said, like, he only told three people, part of me was like, ugh, should I be talking about it then if he didn't want people to know? But then I think about why he didn't want people to know and... It's because there's so much shame and unnecessary shame and uh, and just horrible think, feelings associated with it that shouldn't be there. I think especially if you're if you're a male, because you know we're supposed to be tough. We're supposed to not be vulnerable. We're not supposed to be exploited. I mean, nobody should be exploited, but I think it's you know we're fighters, right? You know we're supposed <laughs> to be fighters, yeah, and yeah. nothing really takes away your power more than than being molested and i think men really our ego is so wrapped up in our um power and our ability to defend ourselves that mm-hmm. it's it's really kind of um 
it's a, you don't want people to imagine you as nobody wants to imagine themselves as defense def, defenseless and exploitable and gullible mm-hmm. yeah and he grew up mormon too which i think had another you know that was another layer mm-hmm. that made it really difficult for him to talk about it or or to deal with it and uh but yeah david and i met um we 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 started an independent film together called must come down and um sort of fell for each other and then i was still in college at the time so uh after the shoot i went abroad to japan and um and we dated long distance for a little while and and then he moved out to la and then we moved to seattle together and then back to la um and that was in November of 2012. And then he went home for the holidays uh, in December and, and passed away there. Um, and he, I think... And it was clear that it was, that it was accidental because you were saying your therapist said that if it was intentional, there would have been a lot of other signs that it was intentional. Yeah. Apparently when people are intending to take their own life, they'll often exhibit pretty common signs of like wanting to wrap things up so they'll you know if they were fighting with someone maybe they'll call them out of the blue and and try to make amends or they'll start giving their things away or you know they'll speak in finalities and that sort of thing and um and uh they'll often or almost always leave a note or some sort of something and david wasn't doing any of that the day that the the morning of the day before he he died because he died early in the morning on the 20th um we were talking about, you know, we were excited he was going to come back to L.A. and we are going to do all these projects together, you know. Uh, and he talked about how excited he was to come back and, like, really start to do, get some work done. And um, so, you know, all signs point to him, him not wanting this to happen. And the thing about David, too, even, you know, having problems with, because he was struggling with addiction, it kind of splits you in two. You know, there's David and then there's... David's addiction and mm-hmm. David's addiction makes him act illogically and selfishly but David himself is was a very incredibly selfless person he was always at his own sometimes at his own expense he was always always there for people if anyone needed help with anything he would be there in an instant and he was always just so completely kind I'd never saw him I never saw him say an unkind word about anyone, really. I mean, he'd complain about things that people would generally complain about, of course, but I never saw him be mean, ever, to anyone. And then people that other people would dismiss, you know? Um, Like, on set, there there was a bus involved in the movie. Like, we would... We met... Our characters meet at a bus stop, and... The guy driving the bus was just like this super quirky dude that they found on Craigslist and everyone else kind of made fun of him and David like treated him like a human being. He'd like have conversations with them with him and like drove him back home from set a couple of days because we didn't have anyone else to do it. And like he that's just that was his way. Um, but then, of course, when you're addicted to something, it makes you act. It makes you act irrationally, illogically and compromise your morals and your integrity yeah makes it hard for you to connect with people and the, and the thing that people that don't understand addiction 
um, chemically something happens in an addict's body when they get whatever whatever it is that they're addicted to, and it can just be like the rush of shopping. There's a, a when that drug gets in your system, it creates the craving for more of that mm-hmm. thing. And for non-addicts, they think it's a matter of self-control, but that when that thing, whatever it is you're addicted to, gets in your bloodstream, it warps it warps your reality. Yeah, and getting more of whatever it is that is making you feel good becomes it it's like a tunnel vision that yeah. um the not addict has difficulty imagining yeah absolutely and that's a main that's a major thing that i i want people to understand more or i guess uh, you know i want that if anything's going to come out of this tragedy and it is a fucking tragedy um is more compassion for people in that situation because I feel like there's such a knee-jerk reaction when you hear the word addict or you see addiction to assume, yeah, that the person is weak or bad or... Selfish. Selfish. And while their actions are selfish under the spell of their addiction, deep down, nobody wants to change more than that person. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a lie that addicts tell themselves, which is tomorrow... I'm going to quit. Mm-hmm. This is the last time I'm going to do it. And you really honestly believe that. Yeah. You really, really. And it can go years where you think you're going to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I know David absolutely was there. He, you know, I asked him to stop taking Percocet at one point and And he did for like a solid month, I think. And I think he really thought like, oh, I'm done with it, you know. Um, but of course he wasn't because that's not how it works. Mm-mm. That's not how your brain chemistry works. That's not, I think pe- yeah, I, I mean, no, we've, I, I heard somebody say it's like dancing with a gorilla. You don't decide when the dance is over. Right. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. And, and we've talked about this, you know, we talked about this earlier and in the previous podcast yeah. that, that was not, um, that there's a certain ignorance with, all mental illness that I think people have. Like, if you have anxiety, oh, you, well, I get worried sometimes, too. Take a deep breath. Yeah. You're depressed? Oh, I'm sad sometimes as well. Look You'll at all get... you have to be grateful yeah. for. Oh, and then so those same people, uh, and maybe it's that's just the general population. I don't know, but that becomes like the societal framework. And yeah. and I think the same thing happens with addicts and addiction. It's like, oh, you're an addict, so you're just a, you know, you're a good-for-nothing, you're, you're, uh, or you're like a miscreant or, you know, there's just there's nowhere in like the social or like the cultural uh, lexicon for an addict that's like a sweet Jewish theater lover, yeah. you know, that that loves his girlfriend and calls his mom. You know, there's no there's no slot that people reserve for that person. Yeah. And, pe- you know, people that think that depression is just, oh, you're stuck in that. That thing that I feel when I'm sad in a situation, right. you know, situational sadness is to depression what the Olive Garden is to Italy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, there's no there's no comparing. There's no comparing. There's no comparing the two. On it's, the surface, yes, they may share some similarities. Sure. But the depth and breadth of them are wholly, wholly different. Yes. And it's, it's so frustrating and saddening to... 
to try to explain that to someone and see that they just don't get it, or that they judge you for, for, uh, for needing to express that, or like they see see it as an excuse, or you know, like uh, that's you know something that I sometimes hesitate, or I haven't, I have actually haven't spoken publicly about about exactly what happened with David. Um, partially because, you know, I don't want his memory to be the addict that died. And I think people, I think some people probably will jump to it or judge him for the fact that that's the way that he passed away or not understand how, what happened to him as a little boy informed the rest of his life and, and eventually led to how he died. And, um... Because victims of sexual abuse are um, much, much more prone to yes. uh, mental illness, depression, and addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Across the board. And, and feelings of worthlessness and suicidal ideation, if not. But clearly, David didn't didn't intend to take his own life. But no. that it sounds like that struggle to get through the day was there. Yeah, absolutely. And... Yeah, and he, you know, it was nothing he could ever really talk about. He could always, always be there for other people. He would listen. To, he would listen to you complain for hours about the most inane shit. Like I was looking back on our text messages, and I, I have anxiety, and I obsess over often a really mundane things. Like I thought I had a cavity once, and I almost had a panic attack for like two days. It was, <laughs> it was stupid. It was stupid, and I would just, you know. He's my partner, and I loved him, and I trusted him with everything, so I just, like, tell him all this stupid shit. And he took it with the most grace and, like, just patience, and he didn't make me feel stupid for thinking any of the things that I thought that were actually just stupid. Like, he 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 took it all on, and and then you look back and you're like, I just fucking... What was I doing? I was complaining about the most nonsense stuff and he was being a fucking angel and meanwhile he had this storm brewing in him that he just never could talk to anyone about and and that's been like a constant theme of talking to friends of his and mutual friends or friends that I only met after he passed away that it's like he was always there for me how did I not see this how did I not know to be there for him in that way and you know part of it is that maybe he just didn't want us to know part of it you know he wasn't ready for us to know or or whatever it happened to be but there's a great, there's a deep pain in, in remembering how, how present he was and how good he was to everyone else except for himself, which I guess is a problem that a lot of people with mental illness have. I feel like I have a mentor that once told me that having anxiety or depression is almost like you're an X-Men. It's like a superpower. So it gives you like insight that other people maybe don't have. But it's also a curse because you're miserable all the time. <laughs> yeah. Th- I think a lot of people that, l- that live with depression and addiction, there is kind of a heightened sensitivity that maybe has set you up for that. Um, and But it can also help you re- read other people, to mm-hmm. have compassion for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also really backfire on you. And yeah. it can make you be a dick that goes into your own shell and shuts yeah. everybody out and makes up excuses why you can't, you know, yeah. make an appointment. Yeah. And 
in, in essence, a difficult person to understand sometimes. Yes. <laughs> somebody who's lovable but difficult to, to, to understand or somebody who's aggravating as fuck and confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the amazing thing about him in particular was, like, I've heard – I have other loved ones that, that – are struggling with addiction or, you know, loved ones that have loved ones that are struggling with addiction. And um, and some people that are just, like, beautiful, wonderful, like, creative, insightful people when they, you know, when they get drunk or when they take a pill become, like, angry or, like, uh, mistreat or, like, abusive, you know, maybe emotionally or whatever. And what's amazing is that David never did that. Like, he never went there. Uh, what was the unmanageable part of his addiction? The way that it made him act, he would just be a completely – he'd be a completely different person, not in, like, the way that he would, like, suddenly become, like, an angry monster. But he would – he was just so clearly not himself, like uh, – and not being healthy at all. Like, you know, he would pass out, like, once he actually passed out, like, in the bathroom and, like, hit his head or like, oh, wow. hit his nose and he was, like, bleeding and uh, – or, he, you know, he would just, like – fall asleep out of nowhere uh or you know he would act like really really goofy and not have any self-awareness and like that sort of beautiful mind of his was just tucked away somewhere because he was just he was gone it would be fair to say that he was less present yes absolutely with you and so also less able to connect to you on the level that meant so much to you yeah yeah it was like losing it was like it was like a weird shadow of David mm-hmm. when he would do that. And it obviously, you know, I knew it wasn't healthy for him. And it took me a while because, like, I – my dad uh, – I never saw him as an alcoholic, but apparently he was an alcoholic. And then and then went – before I was born, he, he sobered up. Um, but I never actually have, like, witnessed uh, – addiction before david and i like never even i like i barely even take you know aspirin when i have a headache uh so when he said the word like percocet i didn't know what that meant i just knew it was a painkiller um when he started acting the way he did i didn't realize i don't know how i didn't realize obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but um how bad it was getting and how this was not the way that anyone was supposed to act on these drugs. Um, but he was really good at convincing me that everything was fine and that this is, you know, it was like par for the course or that it was that he knew what he was doing. And I I completely trusted him um, until I, you know, realized one day that he had been lying to me about about what he was taking. And because I asked him to stop at one point and then I found out later uh, I asked him to stop taking Percocet. And then he agreed. He said he was going to go get a different, less intense painkiller and took it, was reacting the exact same way that he did to the Percocet. So I called his doctor. His doctor informed me that he hadn't prescribed him the painkiller that David had told mm. me that he had taken. And when I confronted David about it, he broke down and, and admitted to me that, that he had lied and he was taking Percocet. And that was the moment. It took me that long to realize, oh, fuck, David has a problem. And, um, and after that, I told his mom and his sister and we decided that he should go home to Salt Lake and see his family doctor and kind of discuss like what the next step was. And, 
Um, I mean, it's hard to say now, and who knows? There are so many things that led to what happened. You know, it's not a simple issue, but it's hard not to be angry at this doctor. It's hard not to not to blame him for uh, a lot. But when he went to go, when David went to go see this doctor with his mom, and his mom was there, the word addiction never came up. Uh, he never expressed concern. He, in fact, said, like, that David was taking a normal amount of Percocet, which just isn't true. He was taking... Maybe David told him he was taking the normal amount. No, he told him how much he was taking. Oh, really? Yeah, and the doctor was like, oh, I have patients that take that much. Sounds like this doctor doesn't really understand addiction. No, no, I wouldn't say he does. And he kept saying, like, as soon as we address the pain, then this will get better sort of thing, insinuating that, like, oh, the only problem is that David has back pain. It's not that his brain chemistry (sighs) is now altered by a substance. Oh, my God. That is so fucking clueless. Isn't that crazy? That is so clueless. And so his mother's sitting there hearing, like, oh, here is my trusted family doctor who we've been with for 12 years telling me that my son isn't an addict. He just has a problem with back pain. So then what's a person going to do in that situation? If you're a mother and your child, the option is fight what your doctor is saying and know that your child is an addict or trust what your doctor is saying and just focus on making David's back better, what are you going to do? What are you going to pick? So we started working on making David's back better and him doing stretches to help his back and all that kind of stuff. And we were living in Seattle at the time that all this was happening. And Always I, a good place to get away from opioids. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it was I could always tell when he was on them, but I realized because he would leave for like, you know, to help a friend with a movie or like he went to go visit family and... I I found out later that any time he would leave, he would use because I he was I wasn't around, um, and and it was ignorant, of course, on my part to assume that he could just kick it, but I didn't I didn't know. I guess uh, try not to. I move. hope I hope you don't blame yourself for that. It's hard. It's hard sometimes. You not have to. a ruminating OCD kind of brain. Yeah, I know from what we've shared. Yeah, so it's hard not to. But um, and it's I- something I talked to my therapist about, and he was like. And it helped what he he said something along the lines of, you know, because I've gone back and, and thought, like, God, all these things that I could have, all these ways that I failed him. I thought of so many ways, like, all the ways that I failed him. Like, he wanted me to read that thing that he wrote, and I forgot, and that's a failure on my part. And, like, I never saw him in a play because we were long distance for so long. I should have just fucking flown out. I should have just known to go do that. And I failed him in that way. And I failed him because I didn't force him to check into rehab. I failed him. I failed him. I failed him. And... and my therapist was like, of all of the, you know, of all the many things that happened in David's life, starting with his molestation up until when he passed away, I'm pretty sure your fault is at the bottom of the list. <laughs> yeah, I would say that, you, you know, I, I just suddenly had an image of you, you being responsible for, for his death the way uh, the person that cracked the champagne bottle over the, the bow of the Titanic was responsible <laughs> for it going under. That's a nice analogy. <laughs> That'll be helpful for me, actually, when I'm having those moments. Yeah. And in my mind, his his family doctor was sort of... Well, his family doctor and the dude that molested him were sort of driving the Titanic in that analogy, I suppose. Um, but yeah, that was... It was insane. And and he was, you know, he's doing well for the most part, except for those those times, of course, where he'd go and he would use. And then his family doctor, he... You know, David went to him and he said something like, I'm... 
And these things were not untrue. He uh, he said he wasn't going to have insurance, which he wasn't because we had we got him a Seattle specific insurance that was for um, people with pre-existing conditions. And because we were moving, it became invalid. So it wasn't wrong. He said, I'm moving to L.A. and I don't have insurance and um, I am going to need like this medication. And so he gave him 90 pills. Uh for, which was, you know, supposed to be like three months worth of... Uh, not for an addict. But not for an addict. And he knew how David was using it, too. Because Betsy, his mother, was there when they met with him the first time and David was honest. Because I told Betsy... How many was he taking a day that you knew? He was taking five five milligram tablets at a time, sometimes 10 in a day. and uh, 10 total pills in a day or 10 times a day? 10 total pills in a day. Okay. And it was making him, you know, and like on the bottle, it's like, take one. Mm. So he was doing 10 times the amount you're supposed to. And then somewhere in that time frame, I think at the at the meeting where they went, where David went home after I busted him, essentially, um, he said, that's a normal amount to be taking in a day. We'll just up your dosage to 20 milligrams and then you take less. And I asked David to just not take those. I thought that was crazy. I didn't think that made any sense. And I was just like, just please don't take those pills. And so he didn't take those. But then I guess he took more later. But yeah, he gave him 90, 20 milligram tablets. And he overdosed. And died. What what parts do you play over in your brain? Because I know that's that's human nature when Mm -hmm. something tragic happens. For some reason, we want to blame ourselves. We want to say, what could, have, what could I have done differently? Mm-hmm. And then we pull the whip out and start beating ourselves up. What, what are the things that, that go through your head as you kind of grieve? When we first went to Seattle, right before we went to Seattle is when it all came to a head and I finally got it through my thick skull that David had a problem. And, um, and I didn't know how to deal with it because... Uh, one of my big problems, because I have problems with anxiety, is never, is always needing to feel validated that what I think and feel is normal or okay. Um, Which I relate to so much. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a constant struggle. It's every day. I gotta hide my unnormalness from everybody. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, how can I present an acceptable presentation yeah. to the world so I won't be rejected? And if I think these things, then they must have a lot of weight and and power. If I'm thinking them, you know, like we talked earlier, we talked on the other one, <laughs> the other podcast that didn't end up working about intrusive thoughts and how horrible and powerful those can be when you get these. The shame of them, especially. The shame of them. And like, if I thought these things, then clearly I must, there's a part of me that actually feels them or it is actually part of me. And um, and so I have that in like the intrusive thought way, but also in mundane things. So like, uh, like in this scenario, you know, I... There is like I, I kind of characterize my brain as like separate from me a lot. Like I'm fighting with my brain all the time. So there's like Ashley and there's Ashley's brain. And Ashley's brain was saying, you know, but what if you're making a mistake being with this guy? Like what if you are you just like going to be duped? Are you going to be like some shackled wife that people see, you know, two years from now and be like, what is she doing? But then Ashley just wants to be there and and deal with it. And Ashley eventually went out and um and decided, like, I love this guy, and 
I'm, I'm, let's do it. Like, I'm ready to work through this with him. But in the interim of, uh, of that, that decision-making process took a while and I found it difficult to do with him around. So I asked him to, to go back to Salt Lake City for a little bit while I kind of figured my stuff out. And, and did you have any support at the, in, in this time? Is anybody helping you kind of set boundaries of what would be acceptable and what would deal, be a deal breaker and any part of it that David needed to keep? Yeah, my friend, my friend, uh, one of my very close friends, um, his name's Aaron. He was amazing with it. And he was, because I was talking to, he he lives in Seattle. And uh, man, if he hadn't been there, I would have fucking gone insane. But but he helped me be like, okay, so uh, either way, like whatever choice you make is going to be the right choice. The only thing I would say is if you decide to stay with him, just make draw a line in the sand and tell him that and ex- and explain to him what that line is and that if he crosses it that there will be consequences and then it, communicate to him what the consequences are so w- during that time when i was trying to figure out like what i wanted to do um i i was dealing with that that tug and pull of like really just wanting to have him come back and like be okay with it but a larger part of my brain being like is that the normal thing to do is that what a normal smart person would do is to accept him back or would a smart normal person walk away and eventually I decided no fuck that like I want him in my life I want to keep going with this but um, within reason right with with a line drawn right um but um so I asked him to stay in Salt Lake and then he came back and did like a grand romantic gesture where he like put up a bunch of art in our department and like did all this stuff. And I remember getting really mad at him. Like at first I was like, oh, this is sweet. And then I was like, no, this is not sweet. I told you to stay there. And you're like, what are you doing? And and there's this whole uh, conversation that I had with him where I was like, I need you to tell me what you need more. Like I need you to be more open with me about like what you need from me and like what you need in the relationship and et cetera, et cetera. And so he came back and then he was like telling me those things. He's like, this is what I need. And at that moment, I was like, what the fuck? You came back here and now you're just telling me all the stuff that you need for me when you just really, really hurt me. Like, what's your deal, David? And he didn't he wasn't because he didn't have the most common like he he didn't he wasn't amazing with common sense. So when all of that kind of conflated, it made me angry. But he was really just trying to do the thing that I asked him to do. Um just not necessarily on the timetable that, that I had, that, yeah, that I had set up, and I replay that a lot because in that conversation he was telling me things that he needed for me, and I like and, like what were some of the things? Like you know, um, he was always very, um, he'd always downplay things that bothered him or things that he needed. Always, always, always. So. If he was in a play or something, he would always kind of talk, you know, it's just kind of a stupid play. Like, I don't really, you know, uh, I I don't really, I'm not that excited about it. But really, he would be. Like, he'd be happy to be in it. And when he performed, he would have fun. But he would always, like, kind of downplay how important it was to him. And so there are a couple of times where, like, he was performing in a play and I was, we were long distance. And I'd be like, do you want me to come? Like, uh, and he'd be like, no, no, it's okay. Because I'd be really stressed because of school or whatever stupid bullshit I had going on and and I just wouldn't come and in that conversation he was like and maybe if I'm in a play like you could come see it and I keep thinking of those things those ways that I because he 
the thing with with him was that he would always give, always, 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 and never ask back. And if it hurt him that I didn't go see a play, or if he gave me something to read that he had written and I forgot to read it, he would never make me feel bad about that ever. He would just put it inside and 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 just let it sit. But it never like boiled like it does with a lot of people. It never like came out in resentment. He was always incredibly sweet, but it would hurt him, and I didn't know that it hurt him. And that's something that I replay a lot, that conversation where he was telling me these things that he needed that I just was too in my own shit to realize that he needed. And and I replay um, November a lot when we first came back from L.A. because he was, he was depressed. He was turning 30. He died three days after his birthday, his 30th birthday. Um and, and how old are you? I'm 22. He um. He was a really incredibly creative person in so many different ways. He was an amazing actor and uh, a really fantastic writer and a musician. And he did homebrew and he he just did all of these things. And he was always working on films or he had his own theater company for a while. And he was like working on business plans with people. And but he never was kind to himself and he never felt like he was doing enough. He never, he felt, he had some like idea of where he should have been at 30 and he wasn't there. And so he hated himself for that. He couldn't see that that was his brain fucking with him. Yeah. That's the, that's the tragedy of addiction and mental illness and depression and, and abuse surviving mm -hmm. is these core messages kind of are buried inside you either genetically or through environment mm -hmm. that just convince you that you're unworthy yeah. and that you're being three steps behind the universe mm -hmm. and you've blown it and, and there's no way out yeah. and everybody else is winning yeah. and you are striking out yep and i think that's where he was and at that time he'd like stopped doing his stretches and had stopped like we were getting on like a good run in Seattle of like he was doing his stretches every day and we were eating really healthy and we were like trying to be healthy and I saw him like not doing those things and for me that was like I'm not taking the fact that like it, for me it was like an indication that he wasn't taking the fact that he needed to keep his back healthy to keep the addiction away because that's how it works fucking idiot um I was like I it really hurts me that you're not doing these things because it indicates to me that you don't, aren't taking this as seriously as I am. Where, of course, I didn't know at the time, like, he had been using when he was gone anyway. And it had nothing to do with his fucking back. Like, that was, like, a justification or that was part of it, but it definitely wasn't the whole story. And, 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 uh, and we, and, like, when I'm transitioning and stuff, I have a lot of problems dealing with that, uh, I get really anxious and really nervous and really, like, stressed. And I was just really in myself at the end. And uh, I remember when he left, I apologized for being that way. And I, I said I was sorry for being so self-absorbed and maybe being too hard on him. And I was talking about ways that we could try to, like, make stuff work that wasn't, like, me being so demanding of him and stuff like that. And so... I guess that's good, but it and and when the first when we said goodbye to each other for the last time in person, it was a nice it was a nice moment, and there was no animosity. It was just like a loving thing, uh, 
not that there had been animosity, but, like, it wasn't, like, a feuding. Like, we weren't, like, in a bad place when he left. But I still regret not seeing that for what it was when it was happening. Like, that he was, the reason he wasn't doing those things is because he was in a bad place and he was depressed. And I wish I had recognized that and, like, talked to him about it rather than being mad that he wasn't doing these things that indicated something else to me. And But you're, you're 22 and you've never been around addicts. Yeah. You know, I mean, how could you know? How could you know those things? Yeah. I tried telling myself that. Because, yeah, it's true. How how would I know? But then, of course, in retrospect, it all seems so obvious. It all seems so obvious in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just replay all those moments of ignorance a lot. Like, ugh, fucking ache. If only you had noticed sooner, maybe we could have done something. But then, of course, there's nothing we could have done, I realized mm-hmm. afterward, too. It had to have come from David. He had to have come to that realization himself. And Absolutely. I mean, you put addicts in prison and they're going to smuggle shit in their asshole right. to get high. Yeah. So it's like you can, you can control people as much as you want, tell them as much as you want, give them consequences as much as you want. But if they haven't admitted that they're ready to change and learn a new way of, of living and asking for help. <laughs> there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. They will go to incredible lengths to to keep getting loaded or or whatever it is that their that their addiction is. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's I think to the to the person the the friend or the spouse or the relative of the person don't take it personally. Yeah. You you are competing with something that is so powerful to that person yeah. that is a god to them. Mm-hmm. It is it's their everything. Yeah. And they don't, in their mind, believe that anything will ever feel as good as that thing. That mm-hmm. even though it's destroying their life, mm-hmm. that two hours of high or whatever it is, when it's good, when the high is good, is worth the other 22 hours of, of pain Yeah, to them. That's the, that's the thing that is so hard for the non-addict to understand. Is, yeah that emptiness and that deadness inside when you get that relief from it through your drug. Um, yeah, it's, exactly. It's like the world goes from being black and white to technicolor and you just, all you want is that two hours of color in your life. Yeah. Especially, yeah, like you said, when you have that pain. And that's part of the, I think, the tragedy and, you know, what I was talking about when, when I was, the the tweets that you read is that I feel like a lot of a lot of people and a lot of men in particular don't feel like they can be vulnerable, don't feel like they can explore that pain or talk about that pain. And so what are you going to do at that point? You're you're dealing with this MMA. <laughs> Just beat shit up. Uh-huh. I wish that was the fucking yeah, I would prefer that <laughs> to what happened. God. Um Well, that's the sound signifying it's time to give our sponsor a little bit of love. Our sponsor this week is Hover, the hassle-free, stress-free domain registration and email management site. Uh, How many times have you looked at a website and thought, wow, what a clever name for a website? How did they go about thinking that up and how did they go about registering it? Well, that's what Hover does. You can register in a couple of clicks. They don't try to upsell you any other stuff. If for some reason you get confused when you're doing it, Their customer support is awesome. They don't put you on hold. They don't transfer you. An actual human being picks up the phone and helps you 
with your problem. So let's say you wanted to reserve the website Paul Gilmartin is the most awesome person in the world.com. Clearly, somebody's probably already taken that. Probably also .net and .biz. What you can do is you can go get that name .org because that's probably still available. And you can do it at Hover. I'm already tired of this bit. Go to go to Hover right now. Now let's wait till the end of the podcast. This is really slapped together. I really should have thought this through more carefully. When this podcast is done, I want you to support Hover for supporting this show. And go to hover.com slash mental and you can get 10% off with your entire purchase. That's 10% off at hover.com slash mental. And hover is spelled H-O-V-E-R. And Paul Gilmartin is spelled P-A-U-L-G-I-L-M-A-R-T-I-N. But yeah, it's, it's, it, I feel like people have such, and I don't know, I, I, part of me wonders how many people actually think like this, but it's enough of a societal mindset or it's, it's perceived enough to be a widespread mindset that it almost doesn't matter, but just having no sympathy for people that have mental illness or have these problems and like uh, it's inconceivable to me maybe just because I have my own pain that I've been dealing with that that you could see someone in that position and not imagine like fuck if if that's what I had gone through like I completely understand why or given what they've gone through and what the world that we live in and what our culture dictates is okay for men to do and say and feel and express like what else are you going to do yeah. like how else are you going to deal with it it you're what you wrote about it that you know that this being related to possibly being related to how men are allowed to express themselves without being mocked in our society touched me so deeply um because you know it, men have been fucking the world up for so long and deserve so much of the scorn and the criticism that's being leveled against them. But in that torrent of criticism, there is a lot of unfair blame laid on some men who are just scared mm -hmm. and don't know how to ask for help Yeah, and, and aren't that part of you know the slave owners and the right and yeah the, you know the worst of the worst when you think of what men have done the and it just really touched me that you can see that though we may be walking around in adult bodies and have muscle or you know whatever look like we don't need protecting Mm -hmm. um, a lot of us really do. A lot of us really need comforting. A lot of us really need uh, a shoulder to cry on. Mm -hmm. We need somebody whose arms we can collapse into, who we can tell our secrets to, um, who we can feel like we're not going to be judged by. Mm -hmm. um, the conversation that you and I had while while we were off mic and they were trying to fix the file, I've only known you for two hours and... The compassion and understanding that I felt from 
from talking to you, um, if I had been able to experience that when I was a teenager, I don't know how we would would have asked for it. I don't know where it would have come from, but that would have made a world of difference to me to know that there, I can have that kind of a conversation with somebody. Yeah. That I can reveal that part of myself that that I struggle with. Yeah. Um, so. Thank you for <laughs> for recognizing that that we're as sensitive and as easily hurt as as you are. We're just really afraid for you to know that. Yeah. Well, thank you for being an example of a man that can actually express that vulnerability. I think that's so important. That's only taken me 50 years. <laughs> well, at least you've done it, though. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Some men never yeah. do. And it's... They're missing out on so much because it's such a good feeling. It's such a good feeling connecting to somebody and just putting your cards on the table and just going, here's here's who I am. You know, I'm tired of pretending. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not cool. I'm scared. Yeah. And honestly, like all of the societal ill, I've been thinking about this recently, like all of the societal ills that, you know, that people contend with and that, you know, we blame men for, I feel like the the better way to fix it is to examine what the, what the experience of being a man is or, like, where it comes from. And, like, and what are their outlets for yeah. a healthy expression? Like, if men were... If it was okay for men to be expressive about their emotional pain, maybe misogyny just wouldn't be a thing <laughs> because mm-hmm. why would... Like, I think that whatever that need is for subjugation or domination or that power, it comes... I can't imagine it comes from just. I mean, where where can is it in, is it innate? I think some people are maybe just born genetically, fucking cavemen, Neanderthals. But I think it's a really, really small percentage. I think it's very, very rare because it's like if that doesn't come from insecurity or pain, then where does it? It right. comes from evil. It comes from like it's just it's not that simple. And most know? of the men that I've met that are misogynists. When I've seen them interact with their mom, there is a domineering quality to their relationship, the the way their mom treats them, where Mm -hmm. they're on eggshells with their mom. Um, And it reminds me of my relationship with with my mom because I was a misogynist and probably still have some, definitely some leftover issues. Um, But it, I had never connected the two. Right. Um, And then I noticed as I began to get healthier and process my pain and my past and everything, I began to view women differently. And I began to see them as uh, my sisters mm-hmm. instead of a pair of tits. Right. And, you know, yeah. what does she look like nude? You know, right. I'd like to whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's... Um, and that's so significant. I think, uh, like, a lot of... Because it's like a joke in, you know, popular culture or whatever. Like, you lay on the therapist's couch and they ask you about your your childhood or whatever it's like a joke i feel like that becomes that has become in like the cultural parlance like a like a silly thing that doesn't actually mean anything but it absolutely does yeah. it starts when you're a kid like they're your template for relationships yeah and at all of that's significant and i feel like it's funny because you know apparently you get more conservative as you grow older and i just don't understand that because i feel like the more that you learn about people and the more you learn about yourself how can you not be just more compassionate be more compassionate Especially is the more you fuck up. Yeah, it's the more like, I, how can you right. how can you not be more like look at that homeless guy and go, wow, that could have easily been, been me. me. Right, I know. I have such a deeper 
I was always like sad specifically when I saw homeless people, but now I have such a deeper fucking misery when I see them. I just feel so terrible because it's like that person could have been schizophrenic and like what a fucking death sentence that is. Yeah. Or had so much pain that they dealt with it with drugs and ended up on the street. Like I have friends of friends that dealt with addiction and their rock bottom was being homeless and imagining David there is like, I mean, that would have been better than this, but Mm -hmm. it's still painful and it can happen to anyone. Like you're not, if you're susceptible to these kind of things, you're not just a fuck up who was born bad. That's not how, that's not how it works. Let's, let's talk about your mental battles. Um, you, you struggle with intrusive thoughts. Mm -hmm. We, We were talking about that off mic. How how comfortable are you? To, I know you're not comfortable talking specifically about the intrusive thoughts yeah. that you have. How specific can you get while staying in your comfort zone? Um, so I guess they're just they're they're not as bad as they used to be. I had them. When did they start? They started when I was a kid. Like how old? Uh, like 10 and were really, really bad then. And then really, really bad again in, uh, I think college, but maybe I, I had a period of time from like 10 to like 14 or something that they were really bad and then they got better and then they got worse again. Were they about you doing things to other people or other people doing things to you or you just witnessing things? Uh, all kind of, of the, all, all of the above. Okay. Um, and gory, violent, sexual, immoral, um, and and I've check, 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 right? Check, yeah, yeah. Check and check for right. me. Uh, if it's horrifying, if it's immoral, if it's um, what it's almost like my brain is a machine that will go. What is the worst thing spiritually, physically, mentally? Anything. (laughs) Anything that could happen at this exact moment, and I would think that. It would be like, okay, first, that woman, that sweet old lady gets her dentures punched out, Uh then this person sees it, and they vomit, and then, you know. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's... Yeah, absolutely. Check, 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 for sure. For you? Yeah. I mean, it's just all... It's just... It's sort of like, what do you care about, or what would you not want to see at this point? Here it is. Like, that's that's just kind of what... Innocence being destroyed. Yeah. Um... And you start getting like, oh, what the fuck? Where are these coming from? Like, what does this say about me that I'm having these thoughts? Um, so let's say a pop, a, a thought pops into your head. Um, what is your reaction to that thought? Um, it's usually, it's like a jolting, like sort of like, oh fuck, like a like a disgust or a, a fear, and then I judge myself for having that thought, and then I obsess about it. Um, and beat yourself up. And beat myself up about it. And it kind of continues. And let on, that define who you are because yeah. you're the type of person that would create that thought in right. your mind as opposed to that just being something that pops up. Stati- you know, like radio static. Right, exactly. And that's that's what feeds in so much into my feeling, needing to feel validated all the time that like I'm okay, mm-hmm. that like I'm. I need to get back with the normal people. Right. And it's like, logically, of course, I know there is no normal. There is no, like, baseline standard, like, way of existing. And any of the people that would fit into that, like, sort of normal sphere are usually very ignorant. And they sell not insurance. Pe- yes, exactly. <laughs> like, boring, you know, people that, like, don't really, it seems like they... Have- terrific people out there that sell insurance. Don't get a <laughs> complex. 
<laughs> you get a lot of an- angry yeah. emails. Yeah. Uh, angry, boring emails. Angry, boring, <laughs> mediocre anger. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you or I, I am always in that spot, and I've had that even with like even with my grieving process, like is this the way that I should be grieving? If I'm grieving this way and not this way, is that wrong? Does that say something about me? Does that say something about my relationship with him? Does that, you know, and... Um, we were talking on the other podcast that there was a fair amount of invalidating your emotions when you were a kid, but mm-hmm. but it hadn't really occurred to you until until we started talking yeah, yeah. about it. I hadn't thought about that, actually. Yeah, you you asked me, um, you know, was there ever a time where, like, you were crying or something and you were told to stop or, or whatever, and I hadn't thought about it, but, yeah, when I whenever I would cry, and uh, I, I don't hold any resentment for my parents for this, and I don't think they really, and I don't, it wasn't, like, a malicious thing. It was, like, my dad saw a hysterically crying child and felt a need to either get past it to comfort me mm-hmm. or just didn't know how to deal with it and so he would often yeah. just be like stop crying stop crying yeah, like who the, who the fuck wants to listen to that yeah i mean you get i get it yeah and uh but yeah that happened and then uh often like my anxiety my anxiety started when i was little like i like i said and uh my mom would just you know she would often say like you just need to be stronger like you just need to be you know you're going to give yourself an ulcer you have to stop like you just have to stop and that just isn't a it's not something that you can just stop. And I think mm-hmm. that's a common misconception. And, and kind of the underlying message, too, is you're wrong. Yeah. Which they would never mean to impart no. to me, of course. Being but that's loving. what you read as a kid. Right. Is I'm wrong. What right. I'm doing is wrong. Right. And so now, and I, I can, and I've thought, I've kind of thought about that before. Like, uh, mom would talk about it a lot with, like, physical pain. So if I, like had like a bad stomach ache or something like I'd want to stay home from school and she'd be like you can't do this like you need to suck it up and like go to school and so now when I like you know if I have like really bad menstrual cramps or something I feel like I if I feel like I'm being weak if I need to like take time and it has the same thing with it has the same effect emotionally where uh, I often feel like if I express to someone I'm feeling really anxious right now. I'm feeling really disconnected or I'm sorry I can't do this because I'm just in a bad place. I always assume that they're going to think I'm making an excuse um, for whatever reason. I totally have that. Um, and, you know, I I kind of... Like, you, you asked me on the other one, uh, you know, what recent anxieties I've been having and I found that uh, I... I need a lot more alone time now than I did before. Um, I think before, before I don't know when this changed, and maybe it changed when David passed away, but um, I used to be, you know, the difference between being an extrovert and introvert, like you recharge being around people or you recharge being alone. And I think before I was an extrovert, and I'm absolutely an introvert. I, I If I am around people for too long, um, having to pretend like everything's fine, then I... Uh, I have to be alone. I have to recharge that way. But I I'm also uh I get anxious when I'm not doing things too. I feel like I have to constantly be working towards something and so I push myself too far to the point that I my battery's drained and um rec- like last week I I uh I canceled like three social engagements 
that I had and I felt guilty about canceling them and I obsessed about the fact that like they probably like what I thought they might they're going to be judging you they're judging me for like bailing all the time and they think I'm a flake and but then I obsess about they must think this about me or they must assume this like should I tell them what's going on with me like would they like would they think that's weird that I like admit the fact that my partner just died and like I feel like my life's falling apart like that's too much information I barely know these people but and then I just like obsess 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 so then I get like three days to myself where all I'm doing is like fighting anxiety like intense anxiety and like trying to you know fend off panic attacks for three days because I canceled on a party so then the Worrying about what your friends think becomes anxiety on top of the anxiety. Yeah. So I like to I like to double down. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think being in a support group is so great because you are you become friends with people who have lived your exact experience and and I never get questioned from my friends. Like if I if they call me to see how I'm doing and I text them back that I'm feeling overwhelmed and I just can't pick up the phone. I know they get it. Yeah. I know they get it. I know they don't take it personally. Mm-hmm. And I know that they know that I will call them when I'm able to pick up the phone. Right. But maybe I just need to go stare at a wall for 10 hours right. or lay right. down or watch another documentary about a serial killer. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think having friends, I think increasing your network of people that get you is really, really huge. Yeah. Really huge. Yeah. And it's, especially with something like, like losing someone, especially losing someone as important to you as David was to me, I think you start seeing that a lot easier. You start seeing where things kind of fall apart in your social circles and like where there's lack and like, well, I can have like a fun, like I'll just do fun things with this sort of person. But like apart from that, I really can't count on them for this or this thing. Do you have any friends you can be intimate with? Oh yeah, absolutely. You can you can tell your kind of my my deep, deep deep dark what's really going on inside you. Yeah, I mean, David was the only person that I have told just everything to before or like originally. Like he was the first person that I just like laid literally everything out on the table with. What did that feel like? Um it was really freeing because of course his response was, "Okay." <laughs> like I understand. And I still love you. Like his, he was just really amazing about it. He was really compassionate and just took it in and 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 didn't judge me for a second. And when that happened, I was like, oh my god, this is. What were the things that were the hardest for you to to talk to him about the intrusive thoughts? Yeah, the 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 sort of gnarlier, really like darker, sort of disturbing yeah. stuff that I really hadn't told anyone about. Um, which, by the way, which she shared with me off mic. She was kind enough to share with me off mic. And there's so dime a dozen, I, I wouldn't say, is, <laughs> the, is the right word, but so par for the course for intrusive thoughts. Yeah, yeah. You know, from, from what I've shared with other people and yeah. heard them share with me. Yeah, totally. And I, I think I, I understand that more now. At the time, though, I was like, no one else has these thoughts. And, oh, mm-hmm. my God, I'm a freak. And he's going to leave me. And I'm I'm going to... Blah, you know. Yeah. If anybody uh, knew I was thinking these, they would be f- trying to find out how I can be put in jail. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're so par for the course. Um, but yeah, telling him that was really freeing. And then after that, I felt like I could talk more about about them to other people. Mm-hmm. And so I have I have like three or four just super close friends that when I'm feeling it really, really hard and feeling really shitty, I can just be like, I, I feel like I'm going to die. Like, I feel like I want to die. I feel... Uh, like I'm never going to be happy again. I I can't breathe. Like you know that that sort of stuff. I can I can go to them with and 
And part of me feels bad because I know that they worry about me and there's nothing you can say. Like, what can you say to that? There's nothing that brings David back. There's nothing that makes it easier. It's just it's something that I feel like I need to get out of me. And, uh, but, but yeah, I do. I have, and, and they get it too because they, they are fucked up like yeah. <laughs> I am. And it, so. can, it, it can become something that really brings you closer together yeah. with, other, with other people. Yeah. Um, you brought a survey in that you, you related to. Would you, would you like to read that one? Yeah. Um, so this was for, um, I'm not, what was it? I shouldn't I'm, feel this I way. Shouldn't, I shouldn't feel this way. So, like we talked about, that's, that's kind of a running, a running do, theme. Do you have the name like, of the person who filled this one out? No. Uh, shoot, I forgot. They'll probably recognize it from what they wrote. I yeah. just like, I like them to hear that, the name, that yeah. somebody else Yeah, I think most of these were feel. anonymous. Um, but they, they have a whatever, a, oh, a, a, a pseudonym oh, sh- that they shit. come up with. That's all right. They'll, if they're a listener, they'll recognize what they wrote. Okay, good. Um, so this, this question was, or this, uh, what's the word prompt? It was, um, I'm supposed to feel, please write as many of these as you feel like I'm supposed to feel blank about blank, but I don't, I feel blank. And, um, there are a few that I really related to given where I'm at right now. And, uh, one of them is I'm supposed to care about something, but I don't care about anything at all. I'm supposed to feel something about my life, but I don't, I feel numb. I'm supposed to feel happy or accomplished when I complete a project or task, but I don't. I feel exhausted and anxious about the next thing. I feel like I'm already running behind and I'm only making up ground I've already lost to everyone else. And uh, the last one was something that I've kind of always felt or dealt with. The first two are more a recent thing um, since David passed away that, yeah, there's like a very distinct sense of like pointlessness or meaninglessness that comes with it. Um so when fun things or cool things happen now, I I don't really get excited about them. I just sort of feel numb or I feel overwhelmed. Or do you ever just... feel guilty for feeling joy or do you not feel joy? I don't really feel joy. <laughs> uh, What's yeah. the ha- what, has there been a happy moment since he he passed away where you, where you kind of felt some of your zest for life come back i can think of one what was it i can think of one actually i when you killed a baby <laughs> when i murdered an entire village <laughs> in a video game uh i went to i have a group of friends in texas that are really awesome people that uh they're really fun and they have like a cute little community they're like all really they're all really there for each other and they help each other out and i i I went there to record something, and while I was there, I needed to record an audition, and I asked them for help, and all I really really needed was a camera and someone to, like, read with me, and they brought, like, lights, and uh, they had, like, three people to read with me for the different parts and camera setups and audio and all this kind of stuff, and they just really wanted to help me, and um, I, I ended up hanging out with them pretty consistently for the rest of the week, and I remembered... When I came home from one of the hangouts being... And did they know what happened with David? Yeah. And um, I came home from hanging out with them once and home or my my brother and sister-in-law's place because I stay with them when I'm in Texas. Um, And just feeling like life is fucking hard, but there are some really awesome people in it. And I remember for for the first time since David passed away feeling gratitude for... for those people that are still around. Um, and that was a nice feeling. I didn't feel guilty for feeling that. I felt glad that I could feel grateful. Um, 
and it was a transient thing and it passed and you know the last three days I felt like um I'm a miserable sack that no one wants to be around and you know it, it comes and goes in waves but that moment I did feel genuinely grateful and there was a joy in that to have so many people in my life that care and do want to help me and don't really expect anything back is kind of awesome and not everyone has that and I do feel grateful for that but um on a day-to-day basis it's very hard to feel to feel happy these days what do you think if if he could say something to you and this may be a horrible fucking Oprah thing for me to prompt you to say but <laughs> not that Oprah's horrible she's done some great <laughs> things but um what do you think he would say to you if he could if he could say something to you right now David yeah about you and your life and the rest of your life I think he'd say I'm sorry to start I think the fir- one of the first things I thought when I found out what happened was like if there is a if consciousness exists past death, David is fucking hitting himself, like hitting his head against a wall right now. He'd be so mad at himself, so mad at himself. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it's funny because some friends of his like imagined, you know, they're, they're very like uh, my spirituality is a weird nebulous thing that I, I really don't. I want to believe that he's around consciousness-wise somehow, but a large part of me is like, no, that's not a thing. But there are a lot of friends that he has. Because then you also got to picture that person watching you take a shit, which is just... It's a weird... I become an atheist whenever I shut the bathroom door. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. I never thought of that before. Uh, (laughs) um, But some of his friends are very confident that they've, like, seen him or experienced him or talked to him and that he's, like free and he's very like and he's like kind of like like there's a carefree david floating out there somewhere and um and i really love that imagery but part of me is also like i can't imagine david being carefree i can't imagine david not being like worried that he's like acting awkward or like you know worrying about other people or you know um but i think he would i know that he would he would feel sorry and that he'd want me to get on with it along with my life and and not and not dwell on him and and to be happy uh but he doesn't really get a say in it right now <laughs> and what what would you say to him if you could if he could if you could get some type of communication through to him and i'm sorry if this is i've never done this before no it's asked this question but i just found myself wanting to know what I your get- answer would be to these two things if uh it depends on the day depends on the mood if i i'm sure if i could if i actually knew i was communicating with him i wouldn't be like fuck you man but sometimes i yell at him sometimes i tell him to fuck off sometimes i'm really angry Hmm. uh but if i could actually talk to him i just want him to know that i love him and i'm sorry for the ways that i fucked up or that i could have done better and um that i hope he was happy with me and I know he was. I mean, one of the really hard things that I learned after he passed away, his family was looking at his computer, and in his search history, there were he was looking for for engagement rings. So that's kind of a shitty thing to think about, but uh, it was also comforting in a way that I knew he was 
of all the shit that was going on with him and all the things that he was dealing with, I think he he felt solid about us and he felt happy that I was in his life. And that's that's a great comfort to me. I would imagine that moment when you confided all of that stuff to him, that had to make him feel safe. Yeah, I hope so. That would have me. That would have been like, okay, this person gets yeah. that we're all a little crazy, that yeah. we're all a little ashamed of parts of ourselves, that there's parts of us that we wish could be different but just are. Yeah. And yeah, that's part of this this battle is how do we make peace with that? How do we accept that part of ourselves that we want to hide from everybody else? Well, ironically, sometimes it's finding somebody who's trustworthy and showing them that part of yourself. That's well, the most healing, yeah. Yeah, it has been for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, doing that was an amazing release. And how accepting and loving he was, despite or and because of it, uh, was huge for me. I feel like it was like a turning point in like maybe even like my self-perception. Well, you know, it's the ultimate compliment to someone because what you're basically doing is you're taking your soul out and uncovering it completely <laughs> and putting it in their hand and saying, this is at the center. Yeah. Of, this is what I hide more than anything else. Yeah. But I'm going to let you see it. Yeah. I mean, that's fucking beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And scary. Scary. Very scary. <laughs> yeah. Very, very scary. But, yeah. Do you want to go out with, with uh, some fears or loves? Sure, yeah. We, I think we kind of talked about all my fears. Do you want to just do some loves? Sure. I'm going to be reading the loves uh, from a Facebook thread. Uh, okay. These are, these are people that posted on the on the thread um logan swanson says i love getting a brand new batch of podcasts right before the hustle of the day that that's an awesome one I like that is a good one. one yeah um my first love i love when i splurge on groceries and end up making something really delicious that justifies the money i spent i like that <laughs> uh, dean patino says i love when my cat suddenly jumps into a cardboard box after minutes of staring at it <laughs> that's a great one <laughs> that's a great one um, I love when I audition for something and I actually feel good about it because I often don't. I'll beat mm -hmm. myself up after it and then I get the role. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> it's happened maybe once or twice in yeah. my entire time. Um, Allison Basiak. Hello, Allison. Writes, I love when an orchestra swells and you feel a wave of emotion pass over you. That's a beautiful mm, one. That's a nice one. Um... I love when I try to learn something um, specifically on the guitar that I've been learning recently. That feels too difficult, but then mm -hmm. I actually end up figuring that it out. That is a great feeling. Yeah. Uh, Anne-Marie Pasquinelli uh, writes, and I'm not, I'm not going to read her, her hyphenated last name because I n know her as Anne-Marie. We dated when I was in uh, um, high school. No way. And I refuse <laughs> to accept that she's moved on. <laughs> Uh, I love when summer comes and every single person I know tells me how much they love the smell of fresh cut grass. Wait, I think I misunderstood the assignment. <laughs> um, I love when I write something and don't absolutely hate it the next day. 
Uh, Dean Bettino again writes, I love the moment when your head hits the pillow on Friday, when you, you're actually tired and not forcing yourself to get eight hours of sleep, and you realize your responsibilities are over for a brief, wonderful moment as your head sinks into the pillow. Oh, God. Beautifully written. That is a good feeling. So rare. Yeah, Dean is the king of these uh, these threads. He he writes some good ones. Yeah. Yeah, his have been really amazing. Um, I love bl- uh, buying clothing that fits me well, that I consistent feel consistently feel glad that I purchased and that I continue to feel confident in. I like that feeling when you when you go to get something, a piece of clothing that you bought and you pull it out of the dresser for the first time and you get to wear it. You know, yeah. It's just been washed. Yeah. I think it's been about seven years since I've had that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not lying. I can't even remember the last time I bought it's for a the new best. Piece of clothing. It's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's a bad yeah. it's a bad road to go down. Uh, Sarah Bong Sarah, apologies to you having to go through life with that last name, um, <laughs> especially on April 20th of every year. Yeah. Uh, I love when you're a guest in someone's home or a bed and breakfast or house sitting and they have an amazing bathroom, deep tub, strong shower, aesthetically pleasing, soaps and scrubs from faraway places, little lotions and potions galore. I love that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, I love going to my therapist and getting an hour of sanity for the week. Me too. Clint Crane says, I love the smell of burning leaves. I do, too. Mm. I like that, too. Is that it for you? That's it for me. I'm going to go out on this uh, last one uh, from Allison. Again, hello, Allison, for a second time. I love finding the time when the longing to and the ability to write match and the words pour out of me. Oh, that's It's a beautiful one, Allison. Yeah, that's great. Ashley Birch. Paul. Thank you so much for uh, sharing what must be not easy stuff to to share, and um, it's really nice to to meet you and get to and get to know you. And I really enjoyed uh, our time when the computer was down <laughs> and we had that that conversation about um, intrusive thoughts. Yeah. Maybe someday you and I will find the confidence to talk about that on on, on mic <laughs> yeah. and, and let other people hear it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thanks. Yeah. Many thanks to Ashley for uh, for being so open um, and honest about something that is clearly um, still really raw and, and difficult to um, to talk about. So many thanks to her. And I'm hoping that somebody out there listening who is feeling like... Uh, they're going through something similar and grieving. Um, I hope you got some some comfort from that. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. You can support it financially by going to the website, mentalpod.com, and making either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, uh, the monthly recurring donation for as little as five bucks a month. And once you set it up, it's good to go until you decide to cancel or your credit card expires. And uh, I have been getting some people lately um, canceling their monthly um, uh, donations. And I understand if it's for financial reasons, uh, if you're strapped for cash, but I hope you're not doing it because... You think now that I have advertisers, I'm I'm raking it in and supporting myself. Um, that's that's hardly the case. Um, so I just wanted to put that put that out there. But if uh, you're you're strapped for cash, I totally totally get it. And I just want to send some love to the, to those of you that have ever donated anything to this show, be it financial or um, transcribing or whatever. It means the world to me, and I probably don't thank you enough. So thank you, um, especially my. Uh, 
my monthly donors. My monthly donors and my stories. I don't know what I'd do without you. Uh, you can also support us financially by uh, shopping at Amazon through our search portal. And that way Amazon gives us a couple nickels. doesn't cost you anything. You can support us non-financially by going to the website or by going to iTunes and giving us a good rating. That boosts our ranking, brings more people to the show, and by spreading the word through social media. That really helps. So um, I appreciate it if you if you do that. And, you know, I've never kind of let people know what goes on in the forum. And I thought this would be a good time to just, um, for those of you that have never visited it and don't know what it's like, I'm just going to read through what the main um, forum areas are. Um Probably the most popular one is introduce yourself here. That's a great place to start, and it's right at the top of the uh, um, topics. Um, and then the various other topics are um, anxiety, body issues, borderline personality disorder, childhood, uh, depression bipolar, depression unipolar, eating disorders, learning disabilities, lying, medications, military veterans, narcissism, OCD, PTSD, schizophrenia, self-harm slash injury slash cutting, um, sexuality, uh, therapy and treatments, trauma slash abuse slash violation, unwanted thoughts slash desires, being a mom, do other people feel like you do, for mental health professionals, uh, help I don't know where to begin to get well, uh, how do you feel now, uh, I just really need a hug. Uh, I'm experiencing an overwhelming life transition. I want to share a dream I had or keep having. Links for more mental health info. Living with an ill loved one. Seminal moments. Signs you need to, new, you need to do something about your depression. The mental burden of a non-mental health issue. Things that ease y- your depression's impact on you. What to do when nothing is working. Um... Discuss the podcasts, suggest podcast guests, help Paul tag each episode. Um, Are you addicted? What's your substance of choice? How are you coping? I'm a friend slash family member of someone who is addicted. Uh, Express your creativity, fear off, love off, meetups. Is a live mental illness happy hour show feasible in your area? And recommended reading. So those are all the main threads that you can go post on in the in the forum. Um, and uh, got a lot of people joining the forum and connecting to each other. And I think the other reason I wanted to, to encourage people to go to the forum too is I'm I feel like I'm kind of at my my limit of being able to reply to emails. And um, I think if the if the show gets any more popular, I'm going to have to. Um, I'm not going to be able to read or respond to all the emails that I get, which makes me feel uh, bad. But I know that that's not that's what I have to that's what I have to do. It's a great problem to have to have, but I would like the people that are writing to be able to connect to other people. So that's why I encourage people, especially if it's really long and it kind of involves a lot of stuff about your life, to go post on the forum because there are people there that that do want to uh, connect and have probably gone through through similar stuff. All right. To the surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Mr. Battery. He is uh, straight in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. 
Um, right, some stuff happened, but I don't know, if, don't know if it counts as sexual abuse. When I was about seven or eight, my aunt thought I was curious about sexuality and locked my sister's door and had me feel her breasts and everything else is a blur. Yes, that is sexual abuse. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I constantly think about social suicide. I just daydream about getting in my car and leaving, not telling anyone, deleting all social media I use and email addresses. I've come close about a dozen times to getting in my car, but I couldn't leave my pet cat. He has helped me during my darkest depression, and I make it my goal to give him the best life I can. Deepest, darkest secrets. I've been depressed for about eight years and have lied about attending college by telling people that I keep switching majors and can't make up my mind when, in honesty, I just don't want to go to college and would rather just live. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have a sexual fantasy about incest with either a mother, sister, or close relative. The funny thing is, I have no feelings towards anyone in my family and don't really like them. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Uh, I like to think I would, but it would be so hard to actually do it. Did these feelings generate any particular... Did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? I spend most of my life spent most of my life shameful of this but recently stopped caring since i believe it stems from my moment with my aunt i never put the two and two together until this podcast well i'm flattered if i if i or my guests played any part in helping you put two and two together because uh, that absolutely uh, was sexual abuse um any comments to make the show better I absolutely love this show, and if I had to pick something to change, I would say pick more people who aren't in show business. Though I love their stories and get a lot out of them, I tend to like the average people you have on randomly. Um, and I get that. You're not the only person that, that has uh, has said that before. So I, I, I try to strike a balance. This is uh, also from The Shame and Secrets, filled out by a woman who calls herself alone and overwhelmed. And I believe we read something of hers from last week. I think it was a, an email that she'd written to me. She is uh, straight in her 30s, was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, Deepest, darkest thoughts. A lot of my unwanted thoughts are about losing my kids, either by an accident, hit by a car, or through a careless mistake caused by me. Deepest, darkest secrets. I have unwanted thoughts about my father while having sex. The thought is not that I want to have sex with him. It is just that I am having sex and he pops into my head. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My husband and I have not had sex for a very long time. I prefer not being touched. Denying my husband sex brings me shame. I feel if I have sex, I am being used, which is so common from people that have been sexually abused and have not processed it. Super, super common. And even from people who have been sexually abused and processed it. It's... um. um do you have any, would you ever consider telling a partner or close, or close friend? Uh, she writes, no. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Shame. Um, I just want to send you a big hug and really encourage you to, um, really encourage you to, to get help. There are so many people that feel the way that you do and they think that it's some personal fault of their own that they should just be able to work through it on their own. And in my experience, it's impossible to work through something so large and buried uh, on our own. 
This is also from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Fat Girl. She's bisexual in her 40s, was raised in an environment that was pretty dysfunctional, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I often think of daydreaming. I often think or daydream about bashing people in the face, of beating the crap out of them. My anger is overwhelming at times. Deepest, darkest secrets. I had a partner who wanted to be choked to near passing out during sex. At first, this repulsed me, but then I tried it and found that I enjoyed choking the living shit out of him just as he was having an orgasm. The relationship ended uh, soon after as this scared me to no end. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I often fantasize about being the, quote, party girl, the one in an all-male party that is used and fucked by all the men and then forced to have sex with some other female that was brought in. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? She writes, yes, and I have. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Not anymore. I used to be ashamed and embarrassed, thinking that I was a sick fuck who should hide, but I no longer... But no longer. I understand that these kinds of fantasies are much more prevalent than what most people want to believe. Yay! And a high five through the internet to you, fat girl, for realizing that you are okay. Exactly as you is. This um, is from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a guy who calls himself Ronnie Hubbard. A little shot at Scientology there. He's male, he's straight, uh, he qualifies. I've had two homosexual experiences when I was in my 20s. He's in his 40s, uh, was raised in a stable and safe environment. However, he quotes, uh, he qualifies, I was raised Calvinist, and that fucked me up for a while. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Nope. Uh, Darkest thoughts? Can't think of any at the moment. Deepest, darkest secrets? He writes, I can only say this because it is anonymous. I have one friend that knows everything about me, and most of my close friends know some of the things about me. When I was pubescent, I sexualized my older sister. I would leave my bedroom door open and be exposed while feigning sleep in the morning. I spied on her getting dressed and undressed. The grossest of all is I once hurried into the bathroom after she finished and fished out a turd from the toilet and sort of licked it. Uh... I have no desire for my sister anymore. I am middle-aged and fairly well-adjusted. I've had a very satisfying sex life and am not a shit-eater. I sometimes get off on porn with women shitting, but I have no desire for that in real life. I have done a fair amount of water sports with some women over the years. The only reason I felt compelled to say this is for solidarity. If anyone is beating themselves up over bearing over being weird and gross, I think they should know we all have secrets and we are all human. Give yourself a break. And that's why I wanted to read that too. I know on the surface that seemed like a sensational thing to read, um, but uh, he's also not the only person that has um, written that in the survey. Uh, there was another guy who who did the same thing with uh, with his sister as far as running into the bathroom. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you being used as a human toilet by a woman only urine do you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies he writes yes I have with the right women not all did these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself he writes I actually think I'm pretty well adjusted as far as sexual stuff I never fretted over my homosexual encounters I really don't have shame about the urine thing but the sister thing I feel shame about Um, well I want to thank you for 
for sharing that because I think that will probably help somebody else out there that's feeling like they're the fucking, you know, whatever, whatever, the worst, the grossest, the craziest. Um, this is an email, um, just an excerpt from an email that I want to read. I got from a, a person called Kasha. I can't even remember if it's a, Kasha is a man or a woman, but um, they wrote, I had an insight the other day, which I'd like to share with you. It happened when I got the last seat at the subway and everyone else had to stand. For a few moments, I looked around to see if anyone was less able to stand than I, kind of fiddling with my bag and feeling uber guilty that I got the last seat. But then I thought, wait would make so much more sense to just feel grateful that I got a seat. And then it hit me. You can transform that type of guilt into gratitude at any time. Like if you're feeling guilty about having a lazy, unproductive day, instead feel grateful that you had the chance to relax. That might inspire you to actually do something the next day. Or if you're feeling guilty for having to borrow money from your parents, instead be grateful that you have that opportunity. That way you will make the most of the money for sure. Gratitude is such a high-vibe state and one we are all ultimately working towards, so we may as well start, get practicing, and start turning those negatives into positives. I love that. We're in the home stretch. We're in the home stretch. All right, how much time where are we at? Yeah, I'm going to do it. Like I, I was going to limit this down to Two, but I'm gonna I'm gonna read all three of these. This was um, oh, this is kind of long. I'm gonna read it. I'm gonna read it. This is from the babysitter survey, so you know it's chock full of goodness. Um, filled out by a guy who calls himself Big Daddy D, and um. He writes, one day just after I turned 12, my parents brought over a girl from our neighborhood to babysit my younger sisters. After putting my sisters to bed, she came into my room. She was just talking to me, and I thought, just passing time. She asked me if I'd ever had a blowjob. I said, what's a blowjob? She explained, it's when a girl puts a boy's penis into her mouth. Ooh, I said, that's gross. She said she thought it was fun and asked if I wanted to try it. I shrugged and said, okay. I sat there thinking it was pretty awesome when she went down on me. When it was over and I had finished in her mouth, she told me that we couldn't tell anyone and if I kept it a secret, we could do it again and maybe even more. Over the next couple of years, she continued as my sister's main babysitter and she would experiment with me. She had me perform oral sex on her, give her anal sex. She would tell me about porn movies that she found of her dad's and would sneak them over for us to watch together and act out. She would make me choke her, finish on her face and hair, just like in the movies we'd watch. This continued all the way until she left for college at the age of 20, and I was 16. Um, did you ever tell anyone? I never told anyone until years later. I went into the army and used it to brag of my sexual conquests, even though it always brought me shame in a way. I think experimenting as kids is normal, but when someone so much older uh, wasn't healthy. Today I'm in my mid-30s and I've always had a thing for older women. I'm married and I love my wife and children, but I've cheated multiple times with multiple older women. When I was 20, I was sleeping with a 49-year-old. Just a few years uh, ago, I had to end a four-year secret affair with a mid-40s housewife. I'm constantly searching for my next sexual conquest with an older woman and it completely fucks me up. I know it's wrong. I tell myself I'm going to be committed then when presented with another older woman who is willing, I can't help myself. 
Remembering these things, what feelings come up? He writes, I think I range in all of the emotions listed. Sadness, anger, regret, sexual excitement, fondness, longing, shame, etc. Years later, I began working at a place. When we had our annual Christmas party, one of my co-workers came in, and the beautiful woman on his arm was no other than my sister's old babysitter. I was shocked and excited and ashamed all at the same time. We tried to make small chit-chat conversation, but quickly realized we had nothing in common. I was a little disappointed in that, but had she said, let's sneak off to the bathroom for old time's sake, I'd have done it in a heartbeat. Do you feel any damage was done? He writes, the damage done was that it has always wanted to make me experience that rush of having secret sexual encounters because uh, of the young age I found it exciting and naughty. If you're a parent, has this experience? Has this influenced how you view your children being babysat? He writes, I am a parent and I do watch closely who babysits my children. We try to use adult family members when possible. And now our oldest child is enough, old enough to babysit. Um, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse uh, outside of the events listed here? He writes, yes, and I have reported it. I had an aunt that was married to my dad's brother that began forcing me to go down on her starting when I was around 10. When she found out I was sexually active, she would make me masturbate for her often on her after I had serviced her. I was also coerced into sexual acts with two older female cousins. I have also begun recently to uncover things in therapy that may have happened to me when I was around four to five with the boyfriend of one of my aunts. Um, He writes in the, have any suggestions to make the podcast better? Um, he writes, thank you for the topics you cover, the humor you inject and the insight you try to give. The love that comes through your show is evident and strong and I'm always moved by how you share your emotions with us as well. After two overseas deployments in dealing with PTSD, a lifetime of fucked up sexual abuse and deviance, a fucked up family life and working on getting out of my own twisted head, it's great that I found your show to show me that I'm not alone and not the only one dealing with issues. Since beginning to work on myself two years ago with therapy and help, I found my need to tell everyone in my life that mattered to me just how much I love them. Most reply with uncomfortable I love yous back or a shy thanks, but the way you tell your guests and listeners that you love them makes my heart sing. I guess that's why I wanted to read that one so much. And those of you that know me and my story know why something like that is... um, why I sometimes feel compelled to read that. Um, this is from the Happy Moments survey. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Splendid Minx. And um, her happy moment, she writes, I was driving back to L.A. with my niece and two older sisters after having Thanksgiving dinner with my parents. A little background. I was overseas for a long time, so besides the first week she was born, I hadn't seen my niece in a year and a half. She's almost two. During the Thanksgiving dinner, I could tell she was in that phase where a child isn't quite sure if she likes you or not. So during our drive back to LA, I'm sitting in the back seat with her and I fall asleep. I wake up about an hour later. She's leaning out of her car seat with her soft, downy cheek pressed up against my bare shoulder. I was surprised. I held that moment for as long as I could. I didn't want to move or even signal to my sisters that I was awake. I felt everything that life is, is in that moment. I felt love. The unabashed kind that only kids still have the innocence to dole out in spades. In that single quiet moment, 
I belong to this perfect little creature, and she belonged to me. That's beautiful. Thank you very much for that. And actually, that was it. Those those two last ones, I thought I had three, but uh, but that was it. And um, thank you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for all that beautiful feedback I've been I've been getting these last couple of weeks. I feel like I'm about ten percent better than I than I was um, last week. I feel like I'm heading in the right direction, and um, I hope you, uh, whatever you're dealing with, I hope you know that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.